How's it going, everyone? Hope you guys enjoy this interview today with Kathy Wong, five-time world kickboxing champion with a record of 18 to 1. She also has a background in executive protection, and she is a teacher. So I hope you enjoy this, and please subscribe. Thank you. I want to thank you for being uh, here, Kathy. Um, you're one of oh, those. If you don't mind, call me Cat. Cat. Yeah, Cat's so much better. <laughs> okay, awesome. Okay. So uh, thanks again, Joyce, today, Cat. Um, you're one of the uh, people we're really excited to look forward to talking to. Uh, just with your background and your training and your knowledge, I think it's an asset for anyone in the security field to listen to and uh, maybe even learn some stuff from you. So I appreciate you being here. My pleasure. And I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. So what led you, you, get, you, I guess you were born and raised in Missouri and you moved to California. Negative. I was born in Missouri. Okay. Six months later, my family drove to California. And up until uh, August, well, this is August, up until August of last year, I've been in California pretty much all my life, and, and I've been in Washington State now for one year. What part of your upbringing kind of led you down to the career path you chose? I don't think there was any part of my upbringing necessarily that, that brought me into that career. I do know that I have a twin sister who is you know, very different than I am, but she has a heart of gold. Um, she's very loud and boisterous and opinionated and um, God bless her. And unfortunately, she was the kind of person that, you know, just she told it like she saw it. She was just straight up honest about things, very truthful, um, which people didn't like, especially when we were kids. Kids don't like hearing the truth about themselves. Neither do adults, for that matter. Yeah, no <laughs> <You> one know, <laughs> Um So she got picked on a lot. We both did, but um, I, I ended up you know, coming to her rescue many, many times. I, I'd have to, you know, pull girls off of her when they tire to a fence or something and just slapping the crap out of her and, as, as kids. So I've, I've become the designated protector of whoever I'm with, um, no matter who they are or what their experience level is or what their fighting skills are. It doesn't matter. Um, it's just something I've naturally gravitated to and, and gotten into and just adopted, especially through martial arts and and then into uh, EP work and whatever else. Yeah, the bullying thing, I sense a common thread with a lot of people who decide to do what they want to do, whether it's become a teacher to help prevent that or be a better parent or martial arts or boxing. It's one of those things where I don't know if anyone really has the answer for bullying. Right. So it's, it's kind of cool hearing why you kind of forged the career you did based on your sister. That's awesome. So how did you beat up with Eric Dolan, your coach at the time? Uh, met him when I was uh, 17. Uh, at that time, I was uh, just starting my senior year. My parents basically ran away from home, and I was living out by myself. Um, I had, was working, going to college at night, high school during the day. And um, anyway, met him, and um, I was also studying Aikido at the time, and he was a uh, whatever degree black belt in Kung Fu Sansu, which uh, I, at the time when I looked at it, I thought, gosh, this is a pretty violent art. But um, but I gravitated to, you know, I, I, I continued training with it um, due, due to him. And eventually we got together and um, we opened a school when I was 19. I dropped out of college. You know, I've, I've never looked back. I've never thought, oh, well, what if I hadn't opened a school? What if I'd continue with my psychology degree and you know, become a, a therapist. And, you know, I, I never looked back because I also realized that during my training, 
um, and teaching in martial arts, I, I'm able to help and, and counsel and, and be a good role model for all kinds of people all at once as opposed to one person at a time. So it's not that I, um, you know, changed careers. I, I just kind of melded the two together, which is a pretty wonderful way of being. You know, I mean, the years I spent getting the crap beat out of me and in, in sparring and martial arts and um, and then being able to compete in, on a on a professional level and world class level and having media attention was super helpful uh, in order to be the role model that people uh, would look at would would look up to. Yeah. What makes uh, Sansu so violent? Like I'm not I'm, I consider myself versed. Like I know what Aikido. I know, but that one when I saw it, I was kind of perplexed because I wasn't sure. So if you could kind of talk me through that. So we just moved to a totally different location. And uh, I was 10 years old and I had never learned to swim, but the trailer park that we lived in was a nice little trailer park that had a pool and a playground. And um, that summer when the pool opened up, uh, I was playing with a bunch of kids and anyway, got, got shoved into the deep end because nobody knew who I was. Uh, they were just playing. And so, you know, he just playfully pushed me in and laughed and ran around and grabbed a beach ball that we were all playing with. And I tried to come to the surface several times. I was able to and try to, you know, stop myself from drowning. But I think the fourth or fifth time, I, you know, I thought I was going to take in a big gulp of air when I reached the water and I didn't. I was gulping in tons of water into my lungs. And um, that was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. But the dying experience was deeply profound so in 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 the knowing when you i don't know how many you know i haven't read too many stories of people dying and the experience of it but i also know that each one that you you perceive it differently so in that respect i think the overall um i i know you know who we are why we're here why we choose to inhabit these bodies and and experience the things that we do is just for the experience, for the growth, if you if you will, right. of of the, of the soul. Um, so, you know, I I know how many times I've been here, and and many times as, as a warrior. So in this in this situation, though I did compete in a sport of kickboxing and MMA and Muay Thai and boxing, um, I I chose to be a warrior of, of peace and to to balance for people who are not, the people who, you know, are so ensconced in this physical world that you know, because I touch it, it exists. Because I hear it, it you know, it, they must have said it. Because I see it, right. it's there. Um, which, you know, is just a tiny, tiny part of, of our capabilities. But, you know, unfortunately, we've been dumbed down quite a bit. So to answer your question, um, the many times I've been here as a warrior, midway into my Kung Fu Sansu training, I was a technician. I was the person who had to do everything precisely right. Um, but one of my training partners just swept me to the ground and I hit hard. Boom! I hit the mat hard and I bounced up. And all of a sudden, something changed. It's like I I awoke. And that, that raw, ruthless, animalistic, or animal just, you know, was alive and well wanting to rip people's faces off. So I was going through my training partners, my, my 
they would throw a fast hard punch and I'd slam them to the ground, bounce their head off the floor and go to the next person and they'd attack me and I'd hit them hard and get them on the ground and, and almost to the point where I was so rough that they were afraid that I was angry or something, but I wasn't. It was just learning to, um, I guess, hone that, that animal that had awakened when I got slammed to the ground. And I, I understand now it took, it took some time. I mean, I didn't squash it. What I did do was learn to be with it, not it, but, you know, just to accept that, that aspect of myself, it's alive and well, and, you know, literally a flick of a switch and action needs to be taken. But the wonderful thing about that was I, I had no fear, um, you know, no fear of, of walking into the face of danger. Now, I say I have no fear in that uh, I've just built my confidence in that, right. you know, I, I got to a point where I no longer allowed myself to be walked on or I wasn't, I didn't allow myself to be taken advantage of in situations. And not that I had to be an asshole or a bitch about it. It's just that, uh, you know, I, I understand human nature extremely well. And that's something that as an EP agent, if you understand human nature, then and common sense, if the two work together, then you're golden in, in, in a lot of situations. You know, if you can think quickly on your feet, and that's the way Kung Fu Sansu works is it teaches you to, which it taught me for years and years and years. And I, I when I bounced in a bar, when I worked in P work, I did EP work for years. And, you know, it's just common sense, um, understanding human nature, understanding how to diffuse situations as opposed to escalate them. And, you know, and, it, and in the end, if that doesn't, if none of that works, then, you know, I, I know how to rip people's eyes out and crush their testicles and stomp on their knee and hit them in the windpipe if I need to and be done. So, <laughs> yeah, shit hits the fan, guess what? <laughs> you know, but I, I learned to be compassionate. I learned that I don't have to be quick to judge or be, I guess I learned to respond as opposed to react. Because reacting means it's too late. You've already let it affect you. Responding means, um, okay, I see the situation the way it is, looking out at the bigger picture. Many, many times when people are, are aggressive and angry and hurt and try to say and do hurtful things, it, it just means that they're hurting themselves. They are hurting. They are, you know, lashing out as a two-year-old and they don't know how to communicate what they want. So you've also trained with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with the Machado family, the Aikido, all this other techniques. How hard is it to compartmentalize it's all the training and then, and then put, you put all that training towards the sport of kickboxing when I assume there's a lot of, obviously, rules in kickboxing, but a lot of the techniques you learn and everything else, you can't bring those to the kickboxing match. match. Like, I don't know if I understand necessarily mm -hmm. all the rules and regs for kickboxing, but I know there's some stuff right. you can't do, which you've probably learned in these other martial arts. Yes, absolutely. And the wonderful thing about um, my particular trainer, um, as a human being, he, he was, you know, an a-hole. But um, <laughs> as a martial arts instructor, as a martial arts instructor, he touched on some things that were brilliant as far as helping people understand, learning to stay calm under pressure. I mean, as far as an attribute as a, a fighter or anybody who's a martial artist, Staying calm under pressure is one of the top 10. So what we would do is create scenarios where I'm sitting at my desk, for example, and 
I know that my desk is solid, so it can handle some some beating, which means I could pull somebody down and hammer them, you know, on, onto the desk if I need to. My chair, however, is on wheels. We would put ourselves, we called it reality drills. And in this reality drill, we'd put somebody behind a desk or in a bathroom or walking out of their, getting out of their car or walking into an elevator, going to the mall, in the parking lot, you name it, we created it. And we ran you through scenario after scenario after scenario after scenario. And, you know, we would just do the what if game. Well, all right, so what if three guys walk in and, you know, uh, two, two, they surround you and then what? Okay, how do you line up your opponents? How do you make sure that you're not gonna be attacked by somebody from behind? blah 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 but we spent years perfecting this not perfecting it because every situation is minutely different and you know you can't just say well i'm just going to do this and it'll work because sometimes it doesn't work because you don't know how they're going to attack you but what you can do is put as many tools in your toolbox as you can so you can work on that situation so you can respond to that as opposed to react to that so you can stay calm under the pressure because in kickboxing it teaches you how to get hit and how to stay calm under that pressure while you're getting hit. And many martial arts styles don't teach you that. They don't. Right. Because they don't. I mean, there is point fighting, which and there's some there's there there are the fighting tactics of that. Learning range, understanding opponents, you know, uh, uh, their range of distance and your range of distance, how to set up things, how to make them move a certain way. I mean, there is the the psychology behind all of that is true in sport fighting period. Um, but in but in a real life altercation, it's completely different, completely. The years that I spent bouncing in a bar where I was 124 pounds, I learned delayed pain reaction, gorilla strong. People basically just wanna be, they either A, when they're super drunk, wanna be, wanna fight everybody or they just wanna be loved by everybody. Right. Um, so, you know, with knowing that and learning that, I, I learned to read the signs. And before I would even approach somebody, I would know just by the fact that I was been around there since nine o'clock that night until three in the morning. You know, you've got six hours of, of observing people. And by the time, you know, one o'clock rolls around, they're pretty drunk and their true nature comes out and, you know, who they are. And you'll know how to address that. Um, so having said that, I've, I've hit many people in the windpipe, stomped on their knees, hit their nuts. Um, and, you know, it's the only thing I had. My commitment and my accuracy and my knowledge of human anatomy are the three things that saved my ass many times. I'm blown away that, I guess, I mean, I don't, this doesn't, I don't mean this to come off as sexist, but for you to do what you did in that role as a bouncer, like it seems kind of, it's, it's, it's crazy, but everything you brought up and talked about is just the idea of customer service and how to read people is invaluable training. That's so cool that you are able to do that. Now, I think it was wonderful training. It's some of the best training you could ever do. However, not everybody is, is going to, you know, I mean, this was back in the 80s, so 80s and 90s. So I, nobody was so happy back then. Right. Well, you look at somebody cross-eyed, they're going to sue you, or they're going to whip up the phone. And, <laughs> right? right. So yeah. I, I think I grew up and, and became uh, who I was during a time that allowed me to really just practice my art in a, in a live situation. And I was so grateful for that because since that time, you know, I've, I've taught people. And, you know, once you create a, a – 
I've gone to Kung Fu Sansu um, seminars where you know they teach techniques and some are flashy and some are some are all of it's pretty effective because they do strike the vital target however i've noticed that this was before mma and kickboxing really became especially kickboxing because when i was coming up in in, in martial arts i started kickboxing on a dare i only had 10 days to learn how and i fought this girl but i've been doing sun tzu which teaches you to strike in combination and I was used to working limitations. So the, the segue into was off of a total dare, and I had never kickboxed before. Jumped in this fight with this girl who was 190 pounds, and I weighed 120, I think, at the time. So we beat the shit out of each other. And I discovered um, a true love for having the shit scared out of me and being able to rise above that. Right. And, you know, handle this. I learned that I, in fight or flight, I fight. <clears throat> I learned right away that <clears throat> when shit hits the fan, I'm more, much more calm under the pressure than I think I would if I had never trained in that particular style of martial art. Um, just because of the trainer that I had, and uh, that Eric Nolan, and the way he approached fighting, um, he, you know, he had a friend get, he had a friend in in, in high school and and. Um, in life basically who got stabbed to death unnecessarily and he vowed from that point on never if he opens a school which we did to never allow any of his students ever to to fall into that situation that type of situation where you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time and you don't know what to do but to get stabbed to death and you're dead right you leave behind family and friends and you know and there's nothing could have been done to to save that so unless you're aware you know i mean just having basic awareness not paranoia but basic awareness of your surroundings and who you are and where you're going and what's going on around you um, will save your life indefinitely just being aware is kickboxing considered a martial art mm. <laughs> well okay so break down the word martial right so it's one of those things where I'm because I always go back to boxing is not considered a martial art, but kickboxing, you kind of get into that area. Is it only because usually your feet? Or if any I, of them would be considered a martial art, it would be MMA because right. they do combine various martial arts right. into the sport. But remember, it's a sport where you have to abide by rules. You have to wear protective equipment and there's a winner and a loser decided upon. Right. Um, I mean, there are no losers. They're they're just they just learn something. Oh, but God. because because the society has this morbid fascination for violence, you know they they want to they they want to see somebody victorious and win and be be their champion, right. be somebody that they can look up to because they can't themselves or they don't themselves. So they are always aspiring to look up to anybody else who has done accomplished something maybe that they haven't or they can't. Um, so it's a sport first and foremost. However, you are fighting in the sport under a set, set of rules, but you are still fighting. So it does hone your skills in, in the overall picture of, of fighting period. It does hone your skills. Um, it does allow you to stay calm under the pressure, to have a killer instinct, to um, develop your speed and your strength and your stamina and everything else. So, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a martial art, but it's a good fighting art. It's a good uh, sport art. 
you know, sport fighting art, I guess is a good way to put it. But, um, you know, it does have its benefits and it does have its, its, uh, its downside. When I, and what I was starting to say before was I went to this Kung Fu Sun seminar and they're used to, okay, somebody throws a punch and here's how you deal with that punch. You block the punch, you stick your fingers in their eyes, you hit them in the windpipe, you crush their testicles, you stomp on their knee. Okay, but somebody launches in that same amount of time a fast jab cross hook and hits you. Bah, 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 right? How do you deal with that? They didn't know how. There are some Sansu schools, you have the purists and then you have the ones who are eclectic, like me, who, who want to learn as much as they possibly can to fill the holes in our repertoire, to be as well-rounded as possible. So those who think like I do, you know, would actually put on some MMA gloves, put on some headgear and a mouthpiece and do Sansu with kickboxing and the type of takedowns that you do in wrestling, for example, or judo or whatever, and try to do your Sansu that way. So it just kind of opens up the door to a huge potential that they didn't see before. A huge way of, of being uh, and understanding martial arts better because the sport will, you know, you're, you're definitely hitting each other as hard as you can in that respect. So it really does teach you to stay, and I, I know I've said this multiple times, staying calm under pressure, but being able to weather the storm and not get, not get knocked out. Because once you're knocked out, hello, fight's over. Right. Yeah. You're, or you're dead. Well, you exactly. brought up a cool point about getting a bunch, building your tool belt to be an effective um, whatever you're doing. And so obviously myself, right. if I'm with a client or with a band, you're going through the crowd, like you have all these tools you've learned from either a martial art or firearm safety or fire safety or yeah. medical training. So I, I, I guess one of the things I always see people that want to do bodyguard work or EP work or, hey, I want to be a security guy. Well, just because you're the greatest boxer in the world or the greatest at Aikido, that does not make you a great EP agent, does not make nope. you a good leader, does not make you a... So nope. I, for me, we always come across these kind of meatheads or girls where they're just like, oh, I'm going to fight, I'm a fighter, I'm a kicker, I'm a shooter. Your best weapon's your mind. And so if you really? can't... If you can't trade that and use all this, like I don't, I'd rather have someone that could de-escalate, use yeah. articulation, then throw a punch. I don't care if you conduct the guy with one punch. Walk the guy out and talk to him. That's more right. effective. Right. I mean, I, I can't begin to tell you how many guys I would just grab them by the arm and I'd say, "Hey, buddy, buddy, let's 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 get you a cab, okay? And I'll buy you a drink tomorrow. Come back tomorrow, okay?" And they're like, "Oh, okay." And then you get the guys who you know just. Bleh. And then they'd, they'd, they'd be escorted out uh, a different way. But, you know, many, many times uh, it's it's much easier to diffuse the situation. And your body language is so important when you're diffusing a situation. Because if you're not careful, you can escalate it just by your own body language. Right. Just how you present yourself and how you hold yourself. I mean, obviously, as an EP agent, you're the first line of defense. You're right there. So... What you do will dictate what happens, mostly. I'm sure there's some people, though, you want just to tee up and kick her right in the head. Like, there's had to have been a couple of people where you're just like, man, right. if I could do this. Yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I mean, one of them was a, was a client that I had. And my client was a drummer for a really successful band. And he just liked to go out. Here's an example. And I can say this because I'm not going to give his name. So right, right. my client wears... He, he he wanted to go out to a really nice club 
in LA. And I'm like, okay. So he he gets his hair, he gets a mohawk, a nice wide mohawk, right? All the way down, right? And and the mohawk the mohawk is dyed to look exactly like leopard skin. We're in we're in line. He he, you know, we were gonna get tickets. I I, I offered to get try to get them ahead of time. He was like, no, 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 it's okay, we'll just go. I'm like, all right, fine. No, that works. Yeah, and yeah. So, <laughs> it's just me and him, one on one. So I didn't have a second person. And the first thing he does while he's waiting in line, he goes, he he notices that this woman is staring at his mohawk. And he turns and he looks at her and goes, What the fuck are you staring at? I grab the kid and I pull him out of line. I walk him all the way over to the car and I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, she was staring at my mohawk. I said, it's a fucking leopard skin, dude. This is an attention grabbing thing. I mean, we had that kind of relationship where I actually could speak right. to him. That. This was not a client I kept for very long because he just didn't understand or didn't care or wanted that kind of attention and wanted to see if I would de-escalate or beat up whoever it is that he starts a fight with. And I thought, that's a waste of energy and, and, and time. Right. And like, Why oh, create the work intention? It's not good. It wasn't right. good. But, you know, I've, I've been able to use um, my life experiences in my training uh, in, in many situations that have literally saved my life in EPA. So I'm grateful for that. Is this is it easier for you to work with a male client or female client or children? It doesn't matter. I've worked with them all. Um, and... I've learned to become a chameleon. Yes, I need to do my job. Yes, I need to make sure they're safe. Yes, I need to make sure. I mean, if, you know, in LA, especially when the Saudis come into town, you jump on this contract and, you know, the, the pay per day is, is low. But during a time when, you know, I was teaching at my own school, plus doing EP work, um, you know, it was helpful to, to get, you know, X amount of thousands of dollars, you know, in a 30 day job. Right. Um, but in the long run, it wasn't worth overall, I'd say there were a few families that I will always continue to work for. Right. Um, because they're wonderful people and they understand the fact of, you know, having an EP agent there where, you know, some of them would like the kids, especially they're like, Oh, let's ditch the, how can we ditch the agent? Right. Oh yeah. In terms of kind of go back to the kickboxing a little bit, do you think that sport would have been or more mainstream and more popular had there been like social media back then? And I guess why isn't kickboxing considered up there uh, in terms of like this is a spectacle to watch because it's such a great and fun sport to watch, but yeah. everyone's either glamorized by the boxing or whatever the UFC Strike Force card is. Well, the, the UFC and, and Bellator, the two main uh, MMA uh, uh, venues now, not venue, but um, circuits now, the fighting right. group, um, kickboxing is not dead at all. Uh, if you look at Glory, for example, they're uh, worldwide, very much like the UFC is, and their, their fighting skills of, of their fighters are phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So... I think there's a few more that, um, you know, just show kickboxing, but I guess because they're not on a regular network, okay. that might be the case. Uh, it hasn't died by any means. 
It's huge. Oh, there's some awesome fighters. It's just it's so cool going down those rabbit holes late at night watching some of these fights or knockouts. Like <laughs> yes. it's so it's crazy. It is crazy and it's really cool. And um, you know, there's a lot to be learned from what people do. I, I'm super grateful that there are still fighters going on. And I've I've learned so much more about kickboxing than I have, you know, after I'm after I retired than I did during my fighting years. But you know, I, I just had not much time to learn. It, it was mostly trial and error, and, and I was already sparring with professionals when I was just beginning. So I got the shit beat out of me constantly, but I learned a lot, you know, and they were all men, always men. So by the time I got in the ring with a girl who was my size and my weight, um, there was nothing she could hit me with that bothered me. So right. I was grateful for that. And I was fighting with people who were already, you know, champions of some sort, whether a U.S. champion or regional champion or United States champion or whatever, um, or world champions later, that they, you know, just by sparring with them alone, you will hone your skills and you will get better. You have to, you have no choice. Otherwise you will just, you know, crumble. You are retired in 2015, correct? Yes, 2015. So how, which is, it's just insane that you could do that, especially at your age that then, and so I guess what kind of drive, do you ever lose that fighting spirit? Or like so you look at Tyson now or Roy Jones Jr., like God bless them for having the, the, the love to do what they do. But what, like how, do you, how did you wake up and be like, yeah, I can still fight? You know, I, I think I'm one of those people that um, it's not that I age slowly uh, or age more slowly than others. Um, but for some reason, well, here, I, this is the... Uh, a solid theory that I, I believe is true. In between all these contact sports that I would get involved in, I would have um, several years, up to six years of a break, of a complete break of, of, you know, I would train lightly and I would just do other things and I would not compete at all. And I would allow my body to recover and to heal. So as a result, you know, I don't have, um, a bunch of nagging injuries right. from years of competing, from years of abusing your body. Because, you know, I was also a massage therapist, um, and I've learned every style of massage therapy there, that there that is out there just so that I can help people because not one style of, of massage therapy is going to work for everybody. Right? Correct. Just like not one style of martial arts is going to work for everything, right? Um, so in that respect, I think because I was able to spend years recovering literally recovering and and you know i never had to worry about losing weight because when i competed i was at weight 24 7 365 days a year period and this this whole concept of you know adopting that that wrestler's um way of gaining a bunch of weight being as strong as you possibly can and then right before your your match you lose a shitload of weight and you try to hydrate as best you can and put all the electrolytes back in your system and you either win the fight or you don't. You, you Your body handles it well or it doesn't. But I've noticed fighter after fighter after fighter, they, they struggle with their weight. They try to fight at the weighted, lightest weight possible, but their natural body weight is much heavier. Right. And it's not healthy for them because that yo-yo effect is going to wreak havoc on them when they're in their 50s and 60s. Because physiologically, your body changes about every seven years. And especially when you reach, 
your 50s, if you're not already in decent shape, then it's going to be when your hormones change, it's going to wreak havoc on you unless you are aware of that. And not that I would recommend, you know, taking hormonal therapy, but it's, it's a, I mean, I guess I would, but I'm just talking about Western medicine as opposed to right. natural way, uh, a natural way of letting your body reach a homeostasis naturally, which takes time. And people, you know, we all know how Americans are. I want it now. Right. I want it right now. <laughs> I want to lose 20 pounds right now. It's like, guess what? It's not going to work. Yeah, put the work in. No, put the work in. Right. You, you're willing to put the work in and fighting. So put the work in in yourself. That's right. the word. Because many, many fighters, they don't do maintenance. Like you maintain your car, right? You get the oil change. You check the tires. You make sure that all the fluids are, are topped off, right? right? So it's the same thing with your body. For every hour of training, you need minimum one hour of maintenance. And what is that maintenance? You get a massage. Maybe once a month, you at least, you at least roll on the foam roller. You take hot baths. You stretch. If you don't do those things, then your body's going to fall apart, literally. What is your favorite nickname you were ever given? I don't like any of them. I didn't like any of them. They seem kind of very, like, they seem kind of, like, sexist. It's very, they kind of, I think the Punisher was cool. Yeah, my, my trainer, or Eric, came up with the Punisher as a play on words, which was punish her, written the same way, Punisher. Yeah, some like the queen of the like some of them are just I don't know. I'm always curious how certain fighters get their get their nicknames. You know what's interesting is one day I went out to fight and uh, Jimmy Lennon Jr. was announcing the fights and he just started rattling off all those fight names: the Dancing Destructor, the Mistress of Mayhem. <laughs> I'm looking at him like, what are you doing? I gotta find that clip. That's awesome. <laughs> That's hilarious. So you actually announced. The first couple of UFCs? Just the first one. How was that? It was a goat rope. It was one of those <laughs> it was one of those situations where nobody knew what the rules were. Even yeah. in the rules meeting. Even in the rules meeting. You got the boxer who's going, um, so do I wrap both my hands and wear just one glove or do I right. wear both gloves, but I can't grab? So what do I do? And they're right. like, Can I fish hook? Can I, I headbutt? Know. Or right. And they it's... said, I don't know. Those were the yeah. answers in the rules meeting. So that was interesting. Yeah, it seems kind of... <laughs> it, yeah, it was a beautiful ploy. It was a beautiful way of, for the Gracies to highlight themselves right. in, this, in this sport. So they created something that, yes, there's risk, because you've got people who do sambo and, and you know other types of... of and all that. A mixed type of martial art that you can compete with. So, you know, there was that danger there that they would involve somebody. But, you know, I think if, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what they did was just put out an open invitation to for anybody to win, what was it, 20 Money, grand? right? Right. Like there's no yeah. weight classes, I think. There was like- There were no weight classes, right. Five, so, four times in one day. And that kind of goes back to what you're saying. Like, if you don't take care of your body, yeah. you could you could literally break down within six hours if your career is yeah. over. And some of yeah. those guys back then were, I'm not going to say, I mean, Dan Severn, uh, Don Fry, like those guys, I mean, they, the wrestling judo background, like clearly took care of themselves. But you look at some of those guys, overweight, beer drinking, any technique whatsoever. It's just, it's, it was, it's kind of fascinating to see where it is now, where right. you kind of, there is a value and there is a, there is a, 
they they look at they look for themselves. They're not just a fighter; they're still a human being, and they kind of they have to take care right. of. Right. There was a period of time when I was so disgusted by the UFC and the way that you know it was just I just felt it was the Gracie show, and not that I have anything against the Gracies. It's just that I thought, eh, this is a little too one-sided in your. your there is your, other stuff, right? Right, and but you know, I, over the years, it did evolve and it did grow, and and many disciplines were brought into um, this fighting style, this this fighting sport. So it's it's become um, much nicer to watch, you know. And now the audience, you know, they're much more educated, because in the beginning, a lot of them were saying, "Oh, it's a bunch of faggots just getting on top of each other." Right. Oh, really? Come on. <laughs> I mean, I knew what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was because, you know, I, I was training with the Machados. But to hear these people say that, oh, there's just a faggot sport and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, my God, really? Right. People are animals and had no idea. That this right. Was, right. But they just didn't know what the techniques were, what they were called, why they're doing it. They just didn't understand. Now... You know, the audience is much more savvy. They know well, everyone's exactly. an expert on social media when it comes to fight breakdowns. Or so to kind of change up a bit, I had no idea that in Batman Returns you were Michelle Pfeiffer's stunt double. How did that? I mean, I I, I love the movie The Stranger, but how did you get kind of two part question? One, it was not that role is always usually uncredited. So why is the stunt double and the stunts treated like that? It too, how, like, what was the experience working with Michelle Pfeiffer to Burton? I don't know necessarily that it's uncredited um, because when you see your name on the credits, that says a lot. Even though you're not the star of the film, it doesn't matter. What you are doing is a supporting role, no matter what. Right. You know, your, your face may not be on the camera, it doesn't matter. It's still a, a very strong supporting role. And without you, there's no way that it would look nearly as good. So, you know, for stunt or people, real, <laughs> yeah, or real, exactly. And you know, it's um, it's an it's an incredibly important role. But so is you know, so are the cameramen, so are the grips, so are you know the the screenwriter, so are the director. So is you know, in in that respect, it's an integral part, and it's a very important part. Maybe it's not talked about as much. Maybe they don't have awards for it. In which in I guess I guess trying to say, like they, they don't. It seems like one of those things where you have awards for everything else so why not most people literally men and women put their lives on the line and they die doing what they do they do and you're right about that um i've never really thought that we were short-changed or short-handed short-changed in that respect just because it is what i chose to do and it is you know it was something that i mean i didn't ask to um i didn't seek out that job it was um Benny the Jet Yukitas had a stunt team that worked on the first Batman, right? Yeah. A good friend of mine. And, you know, I, in, as a beginning pro, I fought some of his girls and been to his place to train. And he's just a great guy. He had a stunt team that worked on the first Batman. And he was also working on the second. And he called me and said, hey, they're looking for a double for Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. You should go down there and I'll set up an interview for you. I said, Okay. I knew nothing about stunt work. Or I mean, I knew about choreography. That, that wasn't the problem because, you know, you create weapon sets and stuff like that. Right. Easy peasy. But I knew nothing, nothing about film work. I'd never worked on a film before. So I go down there. So I show up at Warner Brothers, and I'm walking around 
they gave me a, a name of a building and a, a, a room number. And I'm walking, I have this piece of paper and I'm going, where the hell am I? Because Warner Brothers is pretty big. <laughs> I started walking around trying to find it. And I see this straggly haired uh, young man who has got baggy pants and a white beater tank top and a button up shirt over it with skulls all over it. And I said, excuse me, sir, do you happen to know where this, this building is? And he goes, oh, sure. I know right where that is. Let me walk you over there. And I said, okay. He goes, so what are you here for? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to talk to uh, Max Clevins about um, doubling for Michelle Pfeiffer. as Calvin. And he goes, oh, okay, cool. So he's walking me over there. And he goes, it's that building up there. And I said, thank you very much. I really appreciate your help. He goes, no problem. Good luck. And I said, okay, thank you. And I walked up and I walked in the door and, and uh, you know, I met Max Clevins and I was wearing shorts and a tank top because it was summertime. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, my God, not another fat chick. Why don't you stop eating the Oreos or something? I just laughed because wow. I was 124 pounds and I was shredded. Right. <laughs> I knew he was kidding. Right, right, right. So we joked and laughed for a minute. And he goes, okay, kid, what do you got? And I said, well, I have this VHS tape of one of my fights. Pops it in. He's watching the fight. And phone rings. He picks it up. Yep. Uh Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Click. He goes, okay, kid, why don't you run downstairs and like throw some kicks or something? Let me see what you can do. I'm used to shadow boxing. No problem, right? So I ran downstairs and I see that, that straggly haired guy. Um, <laughs> he looked like he just looked like a gopher boy, right? right. <laughs> anyway, I'm shadow boxing and I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, if the camera's on me, I got to make sure I don't look at him, right? So just just do what I'm doing. So I'm doing, I did what I was doing. And then next thing you know, Max goes, okay, kid, come on up. So I run upstairs. He goes, okay, so Wednesday, you're going to meet with Michelle. We're going to do water fitting. You got to do this and you got to do this. And I said, what? He goes, you got the job, kid. And I said, I do? He goes, yeah. So show up Wednesday. You're going to do a wardrobe fitting. We're going to measure everything. And, and I said, wow, okay. And that straggly haired guy, I ran down and I saw him. And I said, thank you very much. I got the job. He goes, that's great. And I, I got in my car and I drove 111 miles back to Bakersfield. And that straggly haired guy was Tim Burton. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. And he, you know, I guess he just decided to stay and watch me shadow boxing and stuff. And, and he, he had called and asked Max to bring me downstairs. And he, wanted, he just wanted to see what I could do. And working on that film, um, working with Tim, working with Michelle, working with Danny DeVito, working with everybody. Um, here's what, what Warner Brothers was so gracious that I told them that, you know, look, I've got a fight on Showtime. And if, if you're okay with it, you know, this is right after I got hired. And I said, if, if, if it's okay, I'd like to, I need to do this fight. And then and then I'm yours for the next eight months or however long this takes. And, you know, you can, we can do whatever you want. I'll be here any day you want. And I'm it. I'm in. They said, okay, no problem. I'm up in Lake Tahoe, right? And 10 days before the fight, I have to be there 10 days before the fight to acclimate to the altitude and everything else. And two days before the fight, I get a phone call from Warner Brothers saying, um, excuse me, but um, Michelle wants to do some work with you. Okay. I'll be there. Thank you. I hang up and I'm like, shit. So we scrape together whatever money we can find. And I quickly get a flight and I fly down there. And in the airport, 
at Burbank was this mug that had this black cat looking all mad and angry and stuff. And, and the caption beneath it read, piss me off, suffer the consequences. And I thought, wow, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to give her this mug. Right? So I show up and I was just about to knock on the door when I hear a voice behind the door who's really angry and it's Michelle. I never, I mean, I'd never heard her voice in person. And I'm just, I'm thinking, I think that's Michelle. Shit. She's pissed off at somebody and they totally ruined an opportunity for her or something like that. I don't remember exactly what, but she was angry. And I'm thinking, yeah, what do I do? <laughs> right. So I just stand there and wait for a, a kind of a break in the conversation. And when I hear a silence for a moment, I just knock on the door real quick. And she goes, oh, I think my trainer's here. Uh, I'm going to have to go. And she hangs up the phone. And she opens the door. I don't know what look I had on my face. And she goes, oh, my God. How long have you been standing here? Um, <laughs> long enough to know that somebody really screwed you over? I'm so sorry. <laughs> and you know what I did? I went, but I got you this mug. Awesome. <laughs> And she looked at it, she pulled it out of the packaging. She goes, oh, oh my God, I love this. I will use it every day. And she did. It was really cool. But there was some other things that Warner Brothers did that I thought was just incredibly amazing. Because I was a fighter, they made sure that they had um, grilled chicken, fresh vegetables, brown rice. Oh, wow. Um, they made sure that the, the craft service had incredibly healthy food for me. They allowed me to set up a heavy bag and work on the heavy bag. They allowed me time to go run and get my running in and calisthenics and whatever else I did while I was working on the film. They were just incredibly gracious that way. And, and, and Michelle found out later, I mean, let's just say I start working there. The first month I'm working there, she found out that I had you know, scraped together my own money to come see her, to go train with her, even though I wasn't scheduled even though I was, but I wasn't, you know, I was told that I could, I would start training her when I get back. But then Warner Brothers called and said, we need you to come down now. And I went, crap. Okay. So because she realized that I was already up in Tahoe and I, I, you know, flew all the way down to train her and then flew back and disrupted my, my fighting schedule and my training and whatever else I had to do while I was up there. She went to Warner Brothers and said, I want her paid for every single day of the of the making of this film, whether she works or not, I want her paid because I was willing to do that, and I just figured, well, that's my job. You're supposed to do that, right. right? But because I was willing to do that and go the extra mile, according to her, um, she arranged for that. That's that's a great story. Yeah, she was a great person to work with, super professional. No, we did not remain friends afterwards, um, only because I I moved. You know, I, I kind of broke away from the situation, the relationship I was in and, you know, lost all contact um, of, you know, quite a few people. But right. it's okay. not that I not that I was going to go, hey, Michelle, what's up? What do you want to go? Right. I wasn't gonna coffee, right. <laughs> right. She trotted me up to all kinds of people. She introduced me to tons and tons and tons of people, which was kind of embarrassing and fun at the same time. You know, and that's. uh it's kind of cool because had if the roles reversed and you were bringing her 
to your fights, you're you're the star there. And so it's right. kind of cool for you to be a see two sides of that coin. That's guess why yeah. you're so humble too. I you know, I put my pants on just like everybody else. Right. Well some people don't wear like pants. Right. So before we wrap it up, one of the cool things about you, you have been inducted the three Hall of Fames. And so when those when that happens, is that validation that you've everything you've worked for is like I, I, I assume that makes you really proud. Now, what else do you have to do to accomplish to make have those same feelings come back again? That's a good question. Um, now you teach, right? Still, yes, yes. And so I, I bet being a teacher, and I think more people should hear what you have to say and what you say and how what you to instill in them to they have to be successful. Not only fighters or just successful people. I, I would assume for you, teaching is the next thing where you could be, you could have that same type of feeling of being at the Hall of Fame for your fear fighting well, teaching is something i've been doing since 1982 or 83 so you know teaching is something that i i really love to do because i i see how it can time and time again i see how it helps people evolve just themselves and grow confidence and and see that they can actually go through rough situations and can come out of it and be okay and they they learn decisions, you know, making decisions that will benefit themselves. And they learn not to let themselves be walked on and taken advantage of and whatever else. So teaching is something that is um, not everybody's cut out to be a teacher. Just because you become a black belt doesn't mean you're a good teacher. Right. It just means that you've attained a certain level of, of proficiency in your art. But that doesn't mean you're a good teacher. Right. So um, I think teaching is something that is an incredible uh, responsibility. Not so much, not so much fighting and winning accolades and winning world titles and getting all the awards and being nominated for you know whatever, whatever. Um, but being the example that you want people to see and be, because you know you can you can talk the talk, but if you don't walk it, then you're screwed. You know you'll be you'll be exposed soon enough. And right. is everybody, per you know, I'm not, definitely not perfect, but, you know, I've, I've done, I've spent many, many, many years developing a, a phenomenal reputation and knowing that, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I did something I didn't do. Right. Right. But winning those awards, um, getting nominated into the Hall of Fames, I've, in, you know, the, the Hall of Fames, there's more than three. There's like, I don't know, a shitload. But the most important thing to know about the Hall of, uh, Hall of Fame awards is that <clears throat> there's a part of me that realizes that when I do get that award, I need to maintain a certain level of right. Like you're still fighting for you're still fighting to maintain that level that they award you at. Right, and not that I'm, not that I, yeah, yeah, I I won these awards and I should be doing this and that. Right. No, right. it's it's being a good, decent human being is the most important part. The absolute most important part. Being somebody that people can say, "Well, I don't, I don't react to situations. I try very hard to respond, and I understand human nature." So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm humble to be, to be thought of that way. But you know, I spent many years when I was competing and winning world titles. I was getting the shit beat out of me and humiliated constantly by Eric. 
Um, and, you know, this is the first time I've actually brought up his name as far as he was a really good trainer. Right. Um, when it came to conditioning, I was far above and beyond everybody that I competed against as far as my conditioning level. But, you know, what I learned about fighting, I learned from my sparring partners and my training partners um, because they were always better than me. And I, that's how I learned. That's how I got better. It was through them, not through him. Um, right. You know, he was a, he was a taskmaster. He was somebody who, um, I mean, I, let's just say I got off work, for example, and from work to home was exactly 10 miles through river bottoms and hills and freeways and whatever else, not freeways, but um, I had to run. And it was actually, it was exactly 10 miles. I had to run from work to home. He'd sit there with a watch and I had to do it in exactly 60 minutes. So I had to run a six minute mile through all kinds of crap. The fact that he was horribly jealous and he admitted this at some point, he was horribly jealous. And he, he was saying, you know, I've had to do this and this and this for you. And I should be the one in the limelight. And I should be the one winning world titles. And at one point, and this is true because it happened. I was there when it happened. He decided he was going to show me what it takes to be a fighter and to do the right kind of training and condition yourself and, and how to be how to fight in the fight. And he gets there and he fights this guy named Danny Bam Bam Stell. Yeah, and Danny Bam Bam Stell was a heavy hitter. And this was Eric's first fight. And Eric walked into that ring and Danny Bam Bam Stell knocked him out cold. Out, knocked him out. And I stood there and I'm thinking to myself, so <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to be doing? This is how I'm supposed to go in the fight and just get myself knocked out? Oh, I, I see. During that whole time that I was with him, it was just one humiliating moment after another. And he was so controlling and so horrible. And I, and I, know, I know you brought up his name and this is probably something I should not be saying because you know, I'm not emotionally affected by it anymore. But during that whole time of winning world titles, I did not get to enjoy it. And that's why I brought up that point. Did not get to enjoy because, you know, there was always something I didn't do well enough. Right. So there was something I had to do better always. And that was his way of keeping his thumb on me. Well, I think you turned out amazing. Your uh, career and what you're doing now, especially the teaching is – there needs to be more people like you, especially during the era right now of COVID and all this crazy bullshit that's happening. The fact yeah. that you could be kind of like a steady kind of beacon for some people is, that you teach. I think that's awesome. That's definitely my purpose and, and one of the main reasons I'm here. Yeah, it's it's great. Teaching is – It's more people should uh, – the thing, too, for uh, like me is like I'm always trying to learn. So I start. Yeah. The, I do these talks where I'm like, I've learned. I've learned so much. And I've taken so many notes just to talk to you right now. Where I'm just kind of like, I feel like my head's gonna fall off. Like there's just so much. <laughs> it's different like, knowledge. You're talking about stuff like rally based training or you like how it's just the stuff like that where it's just so. I think everyone should learn every day. And if you're yeah. not, you're kind of failing yourself. It's so true. It's really really true. I mean, I I work. I work all day during the day, and then I teach at night. And um, you know, I. I put myself again in a situation where, you know, I don't have much time for my own learning, um, right. but I'm, but I'm making time. And, you know, every day that I teach, I'm learning every day. There's always something new to learn. And if you don't see it, then you've closed your mind off because it doesn't, you don't have to open up a book and, and be able to read. 
and and say, okay, I've learned something. You know, just ex life experience. You know, what happens on a day to day basis, you can learn. So I know you have a you do a weekly podcast. I think you told me like a talk show. What else do you have going on, and how can people kind of follow you around and see what you're up to? Um, I guess through Facebook and Instagram, but um, you know, I, I at the moment I'm kind of uh, limited on time and, and exposure. But um, you know, if, if it's funny because I I just renewed all my licenses and everything last year in in California, right? And then <laughs> and now I moved to Washington. So, but that's okay. You know, we'll see what happens. Awesome. The talk show you do every week, how can someone watch that? Or is that just like a local? They go on Dynamic Dojo Talk Radio um, or Rusty, uh, Restita de Jesus. And that's um, Restita, R-E-S-T-I-T-A, Restita de Jesus. And every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific time, and ex unless we're doing a, a brunch show, which today we're not, so it's good. But a brunch show is usually around 11 o'clock. Okay. Yeah. Um, if, if we do a brunch show. So um, they can tune into that every Sunday at 6 p.m. And I would love it. That'd be great. And we, we try to come up with all kinds of different topics that involve martial arts and, and sometimes not martial arts. It just depends. I love that. Well, thank you for uh, jumping on with us today. Kat. Thank you. I'm, I'm super grateful. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.